0: Total self-considered. I'm Jeff Fine, psychotherapist, nutritionist, and fitness coach. This podcast is all about bringing you cutting-edge research, experts' opinions, and the latest thinking on how to build more fulfilling lives. Whether you're in a rut and wondering what you can do to get unstuck, doing well but want to take your life to the next level, or just want to learn the most effective ways to improve your physical and emotional well-being, listen on. I'll be talking with respected professionals devoted to mind-body health from a wide range of disciplines. We'll share with you the best tools, strategies, and insights that you can start using right away to overcome obstacles that get in the way of enjoying life and creating your best total self.
1: Welcome to the Total Self Considered Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Fine. And we're here with Sang Choi. Hi, Sang.
2: Hi, Jeff. How are you?
1: I'm well, thank you. Thank you so much for being here. Today's episode is going to be about all things marijuana, medical marijuana. And uh, I have lots of questions that uh, are common in the, in the uh, general public that people are curious about. And I can't think of anyone better than you, Sang, to guide us through and help us to unpack some of the uh, questions that uh, often confuse people and uh, people need uh, much more information about. So, uh, before we get going, I just want to introduce you. You have 16 years of experience practicing in specialty pharmacies focused on HIV and infectious disease, oncology, transplant, compounding and fertility and you received your degree in pharmacy from Long Island University. And you served as the pharmacist in charge and manager of a specialty pharmacy counseling patients with complex drug regimens prior to working where you are right now at Etane Health. And at Etane Health, you're the pharmacist in charge and manager of their medical marijuana dispensary right here in New York City. Is there uh, anything else you want to add to that impressive background? Sorry.
2: Oh, thank you so much for the uh, wonderful introduction, Jeff. Um, so, yes, I am the Downstate Dispensary Director for Etain Health. The only other thing I would like to add is that we are uh, a women-owned company and we were one of the five, first five companies um, to go you know, up and running in the medical marijuana program here in, in the state of New York.
1: And uh, we are really neighbors. Your uh, facility, I'm on 40th Street and Lex, mm-hmm. and you are yeah. on 39th Street between Lex and 3rd.
2: Right. Mm-hmm.
1: We are really neighbors, very close. <laughs> we are. And uh, it's an amazing facility. I've been to visit and I highly recommend your facility. So uh, oh, thank you so again much. for being here. And I thought we could just jump right in because we have a lot to cover. So saying in uh, California, marijuana was legalized recreationally in the mid-90s and there have been a few other states that have come on board and but in general in in this country it's been slow to legalize and i'm wondering what your thoughts are about um what is the reason for that what are what are local governments or state governments so afraid of in uh legalizing marijuana and are their fears justified
2: um yeah that's a great question you know we know that on the federal level, um, it is a Schedule One, so there isn't a whole lot of research that can be done right now. Um, the other thing is that there's a lot of stigma attached to the use of cannabis as medicine or just recreationally. So there are a lot of negative opinions uh, regarding cannabis, and it's um, I think it's beginning to shift, actually. So as of now, there are 33 states and D.C. that have a medical marijuana program. And then there are 11 states that have um, recreational uh, programs. So, I mean, the interesting thing is that the usage of cannabis actually dates back to 4000 BCE um, in ancient China. And it was considered a very important pain reliever, used as an antidepressant and um, as a sedative. It only reached the u s um in the early twentieth uh, century, but it was primarily as like an agricultural crop, so it was used to you know build you know houses or you know make clothes and you know make paper and things like that. And the other thing is the stigma is a very big issue. It arose from racism and you know prejudiced views of the users of cannabis, and I think that has uh, primarily due to the fact that you know THC which is a major component of the marijuana plant has psychoactive uh, properties and it became perceived to have many like adverse um, health effects and throughout time the recreational users of cannabis were perceived as criminals but then now it's the result is that it is actually widely accepted and used and i think laws are going to change i mean it's already changing but basically, in 1937, because of the stigma, uh, they passed uh, a law here in the U.S. called the Marijuana Tax Act, which criminalized marijuana and allowed the DEA to regulate its production and uh, distribution, which actually led to further stigmatizing the use of cannabis. So it's it was put onto the Schedule I, uh, you know, controlled drug, which is in the same class as heroin, to now... There's something called the Controlled Substance Act, which still prohibits the use, sale, and production of marijuana and is uh, still scheduled as a Schedule One drug of a history of cannabis. Yeah,
1: no, that's really important. And the issue with stigma, there's the fact that um, the people who are targeted to be arrested uh, yeah. for use of this, uh, some, say, some are arguing that it's actually biased and prejudiced not to legalize it. Because, uh, the people who are targeted are, you know, minorities. And, um, and there's a real sense, a growing sense that that's really unfair.
2: Yeah. And I think, you know, politically it is changing. I do understand that. You know, it is unfair, the fact that you carry a little bit of cannabis and then, you know, you're put put into jail. So now there are a lot of states that are changing, and New York is that way. Now you get a small fine rather than having to go to jail. So it, the climate right. is slowly changing. And, you know, honestly, the, the use of cannabis has doubled in the last decade, So and the public perception of use of cannabis is changing as well.
1: And you've made a uh, distinction... Saying between recreational, uh, legalized recreationally, and uh, and for medical purposes, right? Can you just talk a, a bit about the difference between recreational legalization and medical marijuana programs?
2: Sure. Um, the you know the medical marijuana program, um, the way it runs in New York, especially um, and other states as well, is you have to have a certain qualifying condition to be able to come into the dispensary and purchase you know medical marijuana products. Uh, recreational is where you would just walk into a dispensary and be able to purchase uh, marijuana products without having a medical marijuana card.
1: Kind of like going into a a, a store that sells alcohol.
2: Yeah, you very know, similar. You, mm-hmm.
1: Right, you just buy it without needing any proof of a condition. And we're right. going to talk quite a bit about the process of uh, getting it medically here in New York. Mm-hmm. One question before we go into that piece, there's a lot of talk, I'm wondering what your thoughts are about this, that um, there's not enough supporting evidence to justify this, like kind of the, the wide-ranging health claims being made about marijuana, because uh, products like the like CBD products are so uh, readily available now to the public. Right. What's your thought? You know, is the science backing up the anecdotal evidence that people are talking about with all the, the wide-ranging health claims that are being made?
2: Yeah, I mean I think if you actually pick apart the plant and take a look at sort of the way it works in the body, I think it makes a whole lot of sense. Um it's just kind of affecting any other system in the body. So the interesting thing is we have something called the endocannabinoid system, and that system actually makes substances like THC and C B D. Um so we're just so basically we're just exogenously putting in what we are lacking in our bodies so THC of course is the psychoactive uh, part of the plant and it's the part that can give you a little bit of a high but it's medicinal use is that it can help you with pain it can help you with sleep it can help like cancer patients going through chemotherapy with nausea and then you have CBD, which is the non-psychoactive part of the plant, which works as the anti-inflammatory. It helps with uh, muscle spasms. It relaxes the body and also has anti-anxiety effects. So there's three different cannabinoids. So there's the endocannabinoids, which we talked about, which is the cannabinoids that our bodies make. So the two um, that we know of are anandamide and 2-AG. And then we have phytocannabinoids, which are the cannabinoids that come from the plant. So actually, the plant has about four hundred eighty compounds, and sixty of them are active. And then you have synthetic cannabinoids, which are the medications that are available in the pharmacy, like Marinol. So that is synthetic THC. It was marketed when it first came out as as a medication that would help cancer patients stimulate their appetite because when patients are going through chemotherapy, They lose a lot of weight, and we know how important it is for patients to keep their weight on to fight the cancer. So also help to stimulate the appetite and help with nausea. So if we know how THC and CBD or the cannabinoids work in our body, I think there's a better understanding of anecdotally how it could work in our bodies. So THC affects receptors in our brain um it's called the CB1 and the CB2 receptor and that is why it causes the psychoactivity or the the high feeling because it affects our brains our central nervous system cannabidiol which is CBD works a little bit differently it actually keeps our endocannabinoids in our systems a little bit longer in our body a little bit longer so it has enough time to have the you know the endocannabinoids work a little bit more efficiently
1: that's really interesting saying almost like a uh serotonin reuptake inhibitor. Exactly. Where it kind of blocks it, where it's blocking the reabsorption of the neurotransmitter to allow it to do what it does best and not be reabsorbed so quickly.
2: Right. And this is why it's so effective in pain um in chronic pain. I mean, we the most of the patients we see at the dispensaries are patients coming in with chronic pain. Who have failed other therapies or modalities, and they're just going up higher and higher and higher on the opioid doses, having unwanted mm. side effects and being non-functional. So, I mean, in the New York Times, there was an article published um, in 2018 that 68,000 people died of opioid overdose, um, like fentanyl uh, and things like that. So, um, this could be a really nice alternative to either add... To the opioid or pain meds to keep the dose at the same um, level or even lower the dose of the opioids or come off off of it completely. It's a nice alternative to that.
1: What a great reason to make this more available, you know, with the opioid epidemic and how many people have needlessly died because of it. To be able to reduce the dose or actually use medical marijuana instead of an opioid, what an amazing thing that would be. Are you finding that in your practice, that people are are able to get off opioids?
2: Yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, more likely I've had patients who have been able to lower the doses of um, the opioids or some other additional pain meds. I've had a few that have been able to come off opioids completely. But it just seems to be a very nice alternative, or used in conjunction with other medications to keep the dose the same level or lower the level.
1: Uh huh. Wow, that is uh, really good news. Glad yeah. to hear that. So that's a, a kind of a nice place to segue into uh, walking through the the process, at least here in New York State. And for people that are not here that may be listening, uh, they'd have to check with their, uh, what, their state government to see what the medical marijuana laws are?
2: Yes, exactly. exactly. Uh-huh. Every state has their own rules and regulations pertaining to the medical marijuana program in their state.
1: Right. So why don't we dig in? What is the process for people to uh, get medical marijuana here in New York?
2: Sure. Um, so in order to have a medical marijuana card in the state of New York, there are specific conditions that you must have to be able to get a card. So um, I'll just read some of the con- the conditions um, that in the state of New York. So we have uh, cancer, chronic pain, HIV or AIDS, ALS, Parkinson's disease, multiple sclerosis, spinal cord injury with spasticity, epilepsy, inflammatory bowel disease, neuropathy, Huntington's disease, PTSD, and um, most recently added is opioid use. So those are the uh-huh. qualifying conditions. So you have to have one or more of those conditions. And in, in addition to that, you need to have a secondary qualifying condition to be able to, to, be able to get a marijuana, marijuana card in New York. So the secondary conditions are cachexia or wasting syndrome, a severe or chronic pain, severe nausea, seizures, and severe or, or persistent muscle spasms. So once you have... Um, one or or more of these qualifying conditions and a secondary condition, you need to find a practitioner who can certify you for a medical marijuana card. And the practitioners are um, doctors, they're nurse practitioners, and physician's assistants. The doctors, uh, the practitioners can be found on the New York State Department of Health website, and there is a list of um, practitioners that are broken down by region, so where you live. A lot of them are, you know, office visits, but some of these practitioners you can actually do, um like a teleconference. So, they'll, you turn on your computer and you do sort of a video conference with the practitioners.
1: People, uh, I've been hearing anecdotally, the doctors who are able to approve this, they really want to help people to get the benefits of this. And so, they're willing to work with you to, to help you get approved. So, yeah if you're not sure if you fit any of these criteria, you should still, a person should still try to make an appointment.
2: Yeah, yeah.
1: Because it may be that, you know, you may have some pain that could be approved. And, you know, even if maybe you want it for sleep, you may have uh, other issues that may allow you to get approved and you Mm -hmm. could get the benefits of it. And so it seems, do you think that's true that, doctors are wanting people to get the benefits of this and are are trying to find ways to help people get to be approved?
2: Yeah, I mean, if you look at, let's just take a look at chronic pain, for example, uh, which is a qualifying condition. Chronic pain, is the definition of chronic pain is that your practitioner thinks that or after examining you, thinks that you will be in pain for three months or longer and that is the definition of chronic pain. So I think um, a lot of people deal with chronic pain on a regular basis like muscle pain or you know maybe some arthritis
1: headaches, headaches
2: arthritis yeah headaches back pain. um yeah joint pain and so many things that and you know initially chronic pain was not a uh, qualifying condition only neuropathy was so it was um it was very nice for chronic pain to be added so that other patients who had pain but not neuropathy Would be able to, um, you know, purchase medical marijuana from a dispensary.
1: So people really should not rule themselves out. If they think they could benefit, they should really call, speak to the doctor who could walk them through this, and find out if they're eligible without deciding for themselves if they are or they aren't.
2: Right. Information is key. So you need to, someone who is an expert or is Certifying patients and just to at least get information, and they may ask you for documentation. Um, I don't really know that aspect of it because I work in the dispensary, but they will ask for documentation. They will go through you know your your charts or any medical information that you have, medications, and they'll do a thorough uh, you know workup and they'll then they'll be able to certify you and you can get a card.
1: Okay, and, and then and that's when people come to you. After they've been approved, that's when you see them.
2: Yeah, that's when I see them. Um, And then what we do is we, I think a lot of patients come in very, very scared um, because I have a lot of patients coming in who sit across from me on the desk, and then I just see them shaking, and I'll just ask them, "Are you okay?" And they're just very, very nervous. And I think again that's because of the history of cannabis in our country and you know all over the world and you know, the stigma attached to it. You know, I have, you know, an 80-year-old, um, you know, senior with chronic pain coming in and they're scared and justifiably so. Um, so what I do is I try to make them feel as comfortable as possible and we talk about it in a very scientific manner. So just the way I did on this podcast, I'll talk about THC and its effects and its side effects and then CBD, what it does and its side effects and its um, therapeutic effects. I think when you break it down into that cannabis is medicine, it helps patients feel more at ease that it's not this hokey medicine but an actual substance, um, a natural substance that helps, you know, the pain that someone might be experiencing or some nausea or, you know, whatever it may be. If we put it in a very um, solid scientific way, I think we can um, explain things a little bit better.
1: Do you do you find that one of the fears uh for people uh is that um wow I always thought this was illegal and now you're telling me I can get this and mm-hmm. I won't get arrested.
2: Yeah, I mean it's really interesting because I have so many patients that come in the door who did not know that the Medical Marijuana program existed in New York. But actually uh Governor Cuomo signed the Compassionate Care Act in two thousand fourteen. And we opened our doors in 2016, so we've been around for four years. But there are only about 2,600 registered practitioners at the moment and 112,000 patients who are actually um, medical marijuana patients in New York. I mean, there are a lot of um, regulations as well that we are not allowed to advertise. So that's probably a reason why a lot of um, people do not know that there is an actual medical marijuana program in New York.
1: And people should know that it it is not illegal, talk to your internist or any other doctor about the possibility of treatment with medical marijuana, right? I mean, you can feel very safe to go and ask your doctor if this is an option and not worry about getting in trouble.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I get that a lot that, oh, my primary care doctor doesn't certify, but then, you know, that doctor can actually refer them to maybe someone else that can certify because the Practitioners who are able to certify for medical marijuana in New York have to go through, um, a small, a very short, like, training program to be able to certify for you know, patients for medical marijuana. So, it's not just like any doctor can just do it. They do have to be certified to be able to prescribe medical marijuana to their, uh, to a patient.
1: Right. And some doctors may not just be there yet in terms of their own process in, in finding acceptance with this form of of medical marijuana as a medicine. I mean,
2: yeah, and I understand, I understand the trepidation of the practitioners who are not on board because, you know, because it's a federally, um, illegal substance, it's still schedule one in the same class as heroin, and there isn't a whole lot of research. You know, what we go by is anecdotal research. There are some small studies, but the sample sizes are very small. So I understand why not everyone's on board with it.
1: Uh-huh. So the goal is to find somebody who has been approved to evaluate you and uh, that would person would likely be in the best position to help you in the way that you might need to be helped.
2: Yes. And the practitioners are on the Department of Health website. So you can scroll through, um, call some of them, you know, find out how much they charge for certifications. And, um, you know, you can choose who you would like to go to.
1: Do you know that website offhand by any chance?
2: You can just put New York State Medical Marijuana Department of Health and it'll just pop right up.
1: Okay, perfect. So um, health risks, right? Uh, should people be aware of, of potential health health risks if they're going to start using medical marijuana?
2: So, again, this is a plant that's been used for a very, very long time, but because there isn't a whole lot of research, we don't know the long-term effects of cannabis on the body or the brain even. Um, so, I mean, there are some side effects that you can experience uh, with cannabis. So, like THC can increase your heart rate. Um, it can cause some anxiety. It can cause um, some paranoia. If not used at the right dose, maybe you took too much um, or like maybe CBD can cause some gastrointestinal distress, maybe some diarrhea in the beginning but these are all some um, side effects that do subside over time once your body gets used to using the product. Just like any medication, you can have some side effects but your body does adjust to these effects.
1: And there are a lot of uh, different forms and and uh, concentrations, right? Right. Um, I know in your pharmacy, you have an oral spray, you have a tincture where you can put drops under your tongue, you have lozenges, you have uh, the vaping, which we'll get to a a little bit later. Mm -hmm. And and so there's lots of different ways that you could uh, uh, take it, and there's lots of different doses that you could explore to try to find just that sweet spot for you, just like with any medication.
2: Exactly. I think the misconception is that uh, marijuana or cannabis is available only in the smokable forms because that's what people are so used to seeing. In the state of New York, we everything's extracted into oils, um, so we don't sell flour or the actual plant right now. So what we do is we use a very – I mean, all these products are tested by the Department of Health too. So it's tested for potency, uh, contaminants, fungus, heavy metals, and pesticides. So you know in the medical program that you're assured that you're getting a very good uh, product, um, you know, follows good manufacturing practices. So what we do is we take the THC and CBD and we put them into different ratios. So we have a high CBD product, which has one part of THC, 20 parts of CBD. We have um, a one-to-two. ratio of high CBD. So it's two parts of CBD to one part THC. We have uh, a one-to-one, which means it has equal amounts of THC and CBD. And then we have a 20-to-one high THC. So that product is mostly THC with very little CBDs. And you're correct, Jeff, that they do come in different dosage forms. So for a vaporizer, for example, um, is something that you inhale into your lungs. And it works really quickly. It works within five to 10 minutes. And it has a duration of two hours. So that's really effective for someone who is, let's say, going through chemotherapy and they're very, very nauseous. Maybe they don't have like 30 minutes to an hour to wait for the anti-nausea effects. Then you have tinctures and oral sprays. So those are sublingual or oral oral mucosal usage. And those take about 30 minutes to work, and they work for about four to six hours. We have uh, capsules they take the longest to work. They take an hour to two hours to work. They work for about eight. Uh, we have a topical, we have a lotion as well that you apply to the areas that you actually have pain. And we have a powder. Um, it's a water-soluble powder that you mix into anything you drink. So coffee, water, tea, smoothies, soups, anything. And that takes about 30 minutes to an hour to work, works for six to eight. And then we have the lozenges that you mentioned. So um and those take about thirty minutes to work and has a duration of six hours. So we have different products that if you're uncomfortable using one specific product that you can use other, you know, other forms to get the effect that you're looking for.
1: And you and your staff are very helpful in, in guiding people to make these decisions, right?
2: Yeah, I mean I think primarily that's what we're there for, to help someone guide them through this process because again, you know, we know what a daunting process it can be. But after the first visit, I think patients are much more comfortable in, you know, trying specific products. And, you know, the the fact is, like, dosing is really important as well. So dosing guidance is important. You don't want to start somebody on a very, very high dose of, let's say, THC, our 20-to-1 product, if they've never used cannabis in their entire life. So you might want to start with something like, a high CBD or even like a one 2 high CBD with a little bit of THC in there. So what we're looking for is that even if you have like a 5% reduction in pain or like a 10% reduction in pain, then we know it's working. We just have to figure out the right dose and the form that works for you.
1: Not much different than uh, a person, say, starting on Lexapro, you know, where they might yeah. start on 5 milligrams, a conservative dose see how they're doing, and if necessary, uh, slowly and carefully titrate up until they get the desired uh, effect uh, with the minimum effective dose, ideally.
2: Ideally, yeah, and we know that SSRIs can take up to two weeks to work, which is very similar to CBDs. It takes time to build up in the body to get to a certain level to start exerting its effect. So that can take up to two weeks. And it can take up to like two to three months to really figure out the right dose and the formulation that works for you.
1: Right. Some trial and error there. Are there um, any effects of of mixing medical marijuana with, say, alcohol or tobacco or other prescription drugs? Any concerns there?
2: Yeah. So we know that there are some drug interactions because it does um, get metabolized by the liver, the cytochrome P450 system. So the one that we worry about the most is warfarin, um, which is the blood thinner. So that... It can actually increase you know, the effects of warfarin in the body, so which means that you know you, you might need to lower the dose of the warfarin um, so that you can clot instead of just bleeding. So you know things to watch out for, we tell patients, let's say if you're brushing your teeth and you notice that your gums are bleeding, um, or if you get a cut and it's just not clot, um, you know, clotting as well, then that might be a warning. You know there aren't any contraindications, I would say. There' are just a, um, some warnings about using things together. So if you took, let's say, if you drank alcohol and um, used cannabis or THC, it could actually amplify the effects of um, each other. So if you drink a glass of wine and you know the effects of of a glass of wine, if you added um, medical marijuana or cannabis to that, you know you might feel what you normally feel with a glass of wine but maybe it would only be like a half glass where you would feel like oh okay um so you require you would require less um so they do have additive effects
1: right okay for breastfeeding mothers mm-hmm. what would uh, a mother who is using medical marijuana should she be concerned uh, both during her pregnancy and after she's going to breastfeed
2: um that's a great question so in the New York State program, as long as your practitioner is okay with it or they've given permission, a pregnant woman is allowed to use, uh, medical marijuana. But of course it comes with a lot of cautions. So we know that because cannabis is fat soluble, THC and CBD are fat soluble, it stays in the fat cells. So a mother who is breastfeeding, potentially it crosses into, you know, the breast milk and the baby will get um, cannabis. So we discourage, um, you know, breastfeeding moms to not use THC, but maybe if they really need to, they can use CBD. But the other thing that we do know is that because it's fat-soluble, the endocannabinoids, which are the cannabinoids our bodies make, also cross into the the breast tissue and into the breast milk. So I think there needs to be a lot more research uh, done on crossing into the uh, the breast milk, but we do know that our endocannabinoids come through in uh, the breast milk as well.
1: Well, you know, I know that this is kind of an ongoing uh, discussion for people who are taking uh, psychiatric medications, you know, pregnant women, you know, you're always trying to weigh out, you know, is the depression, say, if a person is struggling with depression, is that mm-hmm. creating a more negative climate in the in the body for the developing fetus then the yeah. medication itself might in treating the depression. It's 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 sometimes a, a hard decision to make.
2: Yeah, it absolutely is. It's uh you know, at that point it's just uh risk versus uh versus benefit. Yeah, so it's it's a hard call.
1: Yeah. So let's talk about vaping, Sang. Um mm-hmm. this is really in the news right now. Uh mm-hmm. there's been uh a real scare, you know, with yeah. vaping products. And yeah. uh you know, on the news, in the in, uh, in the papers, uh, people are being told, "Do not vape, stay away from it, it's dangerous." Mm-hmm. So, can you can you help people understand what's the real deal here?
2: Sure. Um. So there were many vapes that were tested after, um, you know, people were getting sick and hospitalized. So it turns out a lot of the samples that were taken were vapes or uh cannabis based, THC based mostly that were illegal. Um so when they tested it they found uh something called vitamin E acetate, which is basically vitamin E oil, which is fine to ingest and it is to fine it's fine to put on topically, but inhaling it causes a real problem. So and and the reason that it's put into these vapes because it's it looks very much like uh cannabis oil. It's kind of brownish and it looks very much like it. So now in the New York State program, you know, our vapes at Etain, we don't put any uh, additional products in there, so it's just really the extract from the actual plant. Um, no additives get added in there. And the fact, is, uh, the fact is that sample lots of every product that we make do go to the Department of Health lab, and it gets tested for, you know, things we talked about before, the contaminants, uh, potency, fungus, heavy metals. And to date, um the New York State Medical Marijuana program has not had any issues with uh va- you know our vapors or our vapor cartridges at all. So I guess my suggestion would be to go to um a dispensary and you know purchase um uh, a vaporizer. I know it's difficult because in New York it's just medical, but um that would be the only sound choice, I think.
1: So, uh, that's really your safest bet. If you're going to vape, uh, yeah. marijuana, your best bet is to get approved for medical marijuana and get it from, uh, a dispensary like yours where there, uh, these products are monitored mm-hmm. and controlled so that, uh, these substances that were causing the problems are not in there. Is that accurate?
2: Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Correct.
1: And is there a difference, Sang, between vaping, I mean, health-wise, and uh, a difference for the lungs, of vaping versus actually burning the marijuana plant? You know, in the more traditional way of smoking marijuana, you would light it and burn it as opposed to uh, inhaling kind of the the vaporized oil.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that vaporizing the oil is, a healthier option because what you're doing is you're just heating up the oil to a certain temperature and inhaling the vapors into the lungs. Whereas if you are actually smoking flour, inhaling um flour, it's you're you do light it up and it's causing combustion, which also releases a lot of these carcinogenic compounds. So, yeah, I would say Vaporizing oil or even vaporizing flour would be a better
1: option. And vaping versus some of uh, the several other options you have, like uh, capsules or tincture or oral spray or lozenge or powder, w- would you say there's any uh, – I know we were talking about you know, people getting a sense of what works best for them in terms of mm-hmm. you know how fast it works and how quickly they need a response. But in terms of, say, health, you know, uh, vaping versus some of your other products? Yeah, I
2: mean, I think, you know, if a patient, I have patients that come in who don't want to inhale anything at all. So again, we have other options, like waiting for, waiting 30 minutes for a tincture or an oral spray to work is, you know, in the grand scheme of things, it's not a very long time. So even if you took an ibuprofen, let's say, um, that would take about half an hour to work too. You know, my... I think that if you want to keep your lungs as clean as possible, don't vape. You know, Um, there are other options. But like I said, I don't think waiting 30 minutes or so is a long time. But, I mean, you do have that benefit of something working for you very, very quickly. And it's something that is used as needed. So it's not like you schedule schedule yourself to use the vaporizer. You kind of use it. As needed and it's like sort of on demand so let's say you are taking something that's long-acting let's say you take a capsule like two three times a day because we know it has a duration of eight hours but let's say in between those capsules you know you're experiencing some pain and you need you know like the sharp pain that you need to subside right away that's when you would use a vaporizer just something that would be an addition to what you're using but as needed basis so now If you take, let's say, a capsule or something orally that you swallow, there is, you know, we do warn patients for using the capsules and anything edible because of the fact that it does go through um, extensive metabolism in the liver and the THC actually gets converted into a different metabolite, which is five times stronger than what it started as. So there is that warning that we give patients as well, that you might not feel the effects right away, so be very cautious that you don't want to keep on taking a capsule. Like after an hour, you don't feel anything. Oh, I'm going to take another one. I'm going to take another one. And then it's going to eventually kick in two, three hours later, and it's going to have this compounded interest. But again, now, remember that THC converts into a a metabolite that's five times stronger. So that's when you start to get the side effects, and you feel very uncomfortable, basically.
1: Right. And then we have people uh, sometimes referred to as fast metabolizers and slow metabolizers.
2: Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah. so that
1: one person could take it and experience the effects pretty quickly and uh, another person could take it and it could take quite a while.
2: Right. It works differently in different people. Right. That's why it's okay. not across the board like the same effect for everyone. Um, the tincture might work really well for someone. It might not work well for someone else. So um, that's why there is that trial and error period that we try to figure out what works best for that patient.
1: Right. You could have say uh a, a five foot two woman who weighs a hundred pounds, who is a uh a slow metabolizer and could take maybe two hours to re- reach peak dose, and then you have say a, a six foot four, two hundred and fifty pound man who could be a fast metabolizer, and so it's not yeah. necessarily related to gender or weight. Is that accurate?
2: Yeah, I don't think it's related to gender or weight to a certain extent. I think it's also related to the cannabis experience as well, like what is your tolerance? Because even if the same person, the same two people you described, if they were cannabis naive or cannabis you know, experience, it would be a completely different story because those patients, let's say if they were cannabis experienced, would need higher doses anyways.
1: Right, and they know what to expect. Right. So uh, in terms of cost, both mm-hmm. to get approved and stay approved. Let's start with that one, you know. So you get approved by someone who is certified to do that for you and that's gonna, there's gonna be a cost involved there, right? Yeah. What so can a person th- expect to pay?
2: I think there's a range. I've seen all different, you know, costs. I think the average probably is about, you know, probably 150 to 200. The Department of Health actually has, you know, published something that says that you can If you're seeing your doctor and they talk about medical marijuana and certify you within, you know, an appointment, which wasn't just for medical marijuana, the insurance would actually pay for that visit.
1: Hmm. And that's seeing, uh, I see what you're saying. So if you see someone who is approved to to get you approved for medical marijuana and you talk about something else in addition to the medical marijuana, insurance could mm-hmm. cover that visit.
2: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Yes. Right. And then there's, uh, th- is that a yearly cost? I-, I think you have once a year you need to be reapproved?
2: Yeah. So once a year um, you do have to get recertified. So you get a card for one year, your certification is good for one year. Now there is a caveat that if you have a terminal illness, um, there is no expiration date on the
1: certification. Okay. And in terms of cost to the actual products themselves, right, that there's so many, clearly so many benefits to medical marijuana, but then you have all these generic drugs where you can go in and pay, say, $10 or less for maybe like a 30 day supply. What, what can somebody expect to pay for medical marijuana products?
2: We have products ranging from, you know, uh, $10 to two hundred dollars, it's it's hard to say because we don't know if someone's going to be using this as their sole uh, medication, or you know, in conjunction with other meds. So I would say the average is probably around um, two hundred to three hundred dollars a month, and it's not covered by insurance.
1: Right. So it's, it's-
2: not inexpensive
1: yeah right. And would you say uh saying that some of that cost is because it's not legalized and it it', it just costs a lot more to produce and manufacture. Um, is that part of the reason the cost is so high?
2: yeah, exactly. I mean, the fact is, you know there are ten medical marijuana companies um that exist in New York State right now. Um, we can't sell any flour and that means that we have to make everything into an oil. So that's a very expensive process.
1: Right. So ideally, prices will come down. If it were to be legalized, there would be more competition in the market to make these products, and so. you have other options. Yeah. Right. Okay.
2: Yeah, there would uh, be a higher one- demand.
1: Right. I know that uh Governor Cuomo is uh, eager to make this happen, He's faced a lot of resistance. Our neighboring states, uh, New Jersey is eager to make it happen and Massachusetts already has.
2: Yeah. So yeah, Governor Cuomo, um, has put it into, um, the 2020 budget, hopefully being able to pass, um, recreational very, very soon. So he's, you know, he's done some interesting things. Um, he's proposing like a five member board to oversee, um, something called the Office of Cannabis Management. And um they're gonna have another office um, which will handle like social equity issues which addresses um, past law enforcement efforts um regarding marin possession in the black and Latino communities so that it's fair for everyone. And actually fifty eight percent of New Yorkers support recreational use, um twenty eight percent oppose <clears> it. So the numbers are not bad.
1: Is that a number that's increasing? I'm not the, the sure. One in but
2: I don't know, I just pulled that out today. <laughs> okay, um, <laughs> yeah, I haven't looked at the trend, yeah,
1: okay, One last question, thanks uh sure. you know for people who are really benefiting from medical marijuana and they're taking it every day and they have good reason to take it every day, and then they want to go on vacation mm-hmm. right and th- there's a there's a problem there, right, because you're fine if you're in New York State and you have your uh, approval letter from the person who approved you, Mm -hmm. and you you can pretty much take it anywhere in New York State and be okay. You you can't use it anywhere, but you could have it on you. But if you want to go on vacation, even across state lines or internationally, you have a bit of a problem.
2: You do. I mean, because of, you know, cannabis being um, federally illegal, Uh you cannot cross state lines, go through you be um breaking interstate commerce laws or get on a plane because the TSA is, you know, federal. So yeah, I mean I have a very hard time counseling patients on how to take their product. I mean, I, I just I just have to tell them the law basically. So maybe at that point you you know, you have to buy maybe some C B D product, um a reputable C B D product which is available over the counter just on your vacation. Um there are some other there are some states, if you're going to a state that's recreational, I mean you could go into a dispensary as soon as you get there and get the products that you need. But um yeah, because of the federal um illegality of it, uh, that's where we are as far as traveling.
1: Well I know anecdotally, you know, people are taking the risk because it really helps them. But it could be a problem even if you are legal here in New York and you go to a state where it's even legal recreationally, Mm -hmm. legally you can't take it from New York to that state, right?
2: Right. That's what the law says, that you cannot... That's what the law says, right. Yeah.
1: Okay saying you know you have been so helpful you've answered so many questions i really really appreciate you taking this time it's been uh so wonderful to uh, tap into your expertise uh to be able to get so much information from you now you have your uh uh, medical dispensary here is there anything you'd like to say about that for people listening uh, anything you want to say about your dispensary or how they can find you or
2: um yeah, so I mean we have a website, uh it's etanehealth.com. Um if you'd like more information, just contact us and we'd be glad to, you know, speak to you about anything that concerns you or the process or whatever it is that you like to talk about. I mean we're just only you know, we want to help. Um so we want to make access easier for anybody who wants to come in, so we'll try to make it as easy as possible. Um so yeah, we're just here to answer any questions that you may have.
1: And again, you are uh, on uh, 39th Street between Lex and Park. People can find you at etane. Is it Com?
2: Yes, yeah, etanehealth.com. Um, we have four different locations. We have one in Manhattan, uh, 39th Street between 3rd and Lex. Then we have a uh, dispensary in Yonkers, uh, Kingston, and Syracuse.
1: Great. Okay. Thank, thank you so much for being here.
0: Thanks for listening to The Total Self Considered, a podcast dedicated to bringing you the latest thinking and advice on how to build happier, healthier, more fulfilling lives. In coming episodes, we'll chat with mind-body professionals from different disciplines like counseling, fitness, nutrition, physical therapy, and many others. And if you have any suggestions for who I should have on the show or what topics we should discuss, let me know. Visit MyTotalSelf.com and send me your questions and comments using my contact form. While you're there, check out the Total Self blog for more advice, insights, and strategies to help you enjoy life and create your best self. Once again, the website is mytotalself.com, and I'm your host, Jeff Fine. Join me on the next episode of The Total Self Considered, and until then, take good care of your total self.